Hello, welcome and thank you for joining us at Live from the Hive, a place where we discuss early years in education and how we can get the best from both to support all of our little people to have the best start in life. Today we are recording the finale of our um, series two. So we've talked to a range of different guests about neurodiversity and I literally think we've saved the best for last. So we've got my colleague Terry Ann on today. Terry, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Really, really well, Tara. Really excited about having you on. So, um, Terry, can you tell us a tiny bit about um, why you've come on the episode today? So, the series is about neurodiversity. How do you fit into any of that? So, um, I have a diagnosis of autism, and I also have a diagnosis of dyspraxia. Autism is a, a disability, um, and I might actually have to get up a kind of description for this because it's it's a wide spectrum of a variety of differences that you might perceive. So, so the NHS says that autistic people may act in a different way to other people, and this is a result of our brain's development. So uh, we might find it hard to communicate or interact with other people, find it hard to understand how other people think or feel. Uh, We might find things like bright lights or loud noises overwhelming, and we might get anxious or upset about unfamiliar situations and social events. We also might take longer to understand and process information, and we might do or think the same things over and over again. So that's just a little kind of snippet of what the NHS say about autism. And then dyspraxia is um, a specific learning difficulty. It shares many traits with those of dyslexia, ADHD, dysgraphia, and dyscalculia. Um, I call them the disses. And, <laughs> and um, dyspraxia affects your motor coordination, uh, your ability to plan and process information, and it affects uh, your ability to to organize so um i call myself a scatterbrain but actually i'm dyspraxic and there's a reason behind why i'm not very organized and i take a bit longer to process information and that's why i'm here today so um why don't you start off terry by telling us a bit about what it is that you do right now so what's your job what do you do I currently work uh, at Busy Bees Education and Training as a digital marketing apprentice. I started uh, in January this year and um, so far I've been um, helping out with social media. I've been um, planning and organising digital campaigns and I've also had the privilege of editing this podcast that you can hear me on now. So um, anything that you may have uh, already heard me on, most likely here right here yes so you're the person that makes it sound amazing so all the outtakes and all that sort of thing you chop it up and you make it presentable yeah. which is yeah. awesome all the all the swear words so that in- you give paul every time you swear <laughs> oh my gosh my mum might hear this and she might think that's where well, I think she does already. you no, don't swear there. not really uh, i think a lot of people might disagree <laughs> so and terry in your job what's your favorite thing about it 
Oh, that's that's a difficult that's a difficult question because um, I I love so many different aspects of my job. I think one of my favourite things to do is to record course voiceovers. I, I feel like that's that's really fun. Right. Um, I also I, yeah. I love editing the podcast. Radio is like one of my favourite things. So I definitely say that editing this podcast is one of my favourite things to do. And I hope that during the editing process, I can still say that. <laughs> I wonder if I, I tell me if there was a cookie I think I'd give you. That's really awesome to hear. I didn't know you liked it that much. Yeah, I, I love it. I think it's great. And then obviously I, I love planning and scheduling social media content. And yeah. um, I, I like learning more about the digital marketing sphere as well on my apprenticeship. So I've really, really been enjoying it. Yeah. That's really cool. So like with the um, podcast, um, there was, I can't remember whose idea it was. I think it was like either your idea or a collective to um, have this series about neurodiversity. And it was in that discussion that you said to us that you were actually neurodiverse yourself. Um, can you remember that conversation and how it felt for you? Yeah, I can. It's um, it's a bit of an odd one, I suppose, because I feel like, um, I don't want to say I mask my neurodiversity quite well, but most people think I um, neurotypical Okay. until they properly get to know me and then they're like oh maybe maybe you're a little bit yeah. different and uh, so because a lot of my communication with work has been over teams calls and I've not really had the chance to meet anyone in person uh I have my like game face on before okay. every call so I gear myself up to make sure that I'm sociable and make sure that I am willing to cooperate and work and so during like work calls, I don't seem autistic or dyspraxic at all because right. of these things. So mm. um, because you guys have courses about SEND, um, you work with a lot of young people um, and Busy Bees use Cognacist as well. I, I just thought it was kind of, um, it was definitely topical because when mm. we were talking about it, it was Autism Awareness Month. Um, so I just thought, you know what, might as might as well let you all know. And it's it's a bit of an odd one because I never tell employers straight up no. that I'm autistic. And it's funny. Um, heard someone speak the other day about how people could potentially see it as a barrier, and that's why they don't mention yeah. that they're they're autistic or they have dyslexia or uh, any sort of learning disability or difficulty. But I never, I never kind of, I never, I didn't see it from myself like that. So I didn't think, Oh, this will be a barrier to me getting employed. I just thought, uh, if somebody asks me, I'll tell them, but yeah. until then I'm not gonna, I'd, I'll just, I'll just kind of leave it. Okay. So beyond the point of telling everyone, do you feel that there has been a marked difference in how you've been treated by people or has it made a difference at all, do you think? What I have to say is that the team here at Busy Bees are, are really supportive in general. So uh, whether you're, um, so I would say that there hasn't been much of a difference in the way that I've been <laughs> treated. And I would say that that's actually a really good thing because I am getting on fine with the coping mechanisms that I've learned over like the the past yeah. few years so um because of that I am really grateful that I haven't been treated differently yeah. however the support I've received from 
my boss and from other people in in the business has been really important and the fact that everyone has allowed me to be open about it and they've allowed me to take the direction uh, of the podcast in the way that it was so focusing on neurodiversity and really giving a voice to those that do have neurodiversity um was really really important to me so i'm i'm just really glad that i've had the opportunity to be able to do that and i feel like if i hadn't have been so forthcoming about my own neurodiversity maybe i wouldn't have had the chance to do that i think um you know it's a really valid point you make and for me i think when you mentioned it it was something that you were mentioning about yourself and that's all i saw it as i didn't really think to myself mm-hmm. oh i need to treat her differently now in any if anything i just wanted to get to know you more and see what it is that i needed to do to work with you you know but um, speaking of that, because you mentioned putting a mm-hmm. game face on, you know, when you're on these calls. So if you were working in like a full time environment in a workplace, how do you think that you might differ in your approach to interacting with people if you had to be around them like all day? I kind of have to err on the side of caution when it comes to interacting pe- with people because I suffer from sensory overload and... Um, If you don't know what sensory overload is, it's basically where your brain becomes so overstimulated with everything that's going on around you. So, for example, in an office, it'd be people typing on the keyboards, um, somebody chewing in the background, lots of people having lots of different conversations that... um, For me, working from home has been a lot easier because I don't have to then deal with the sensory overload I would have say if I was in an office however um I'd say my approach is like I've really got to gear myself up for it I've really got to put a game face on I've got to tell myself you're working today and you are positive you are happy you know uh, people call these positive like affirmations or whatever but I have to I have to tell myself you are in a good mood today you are ready to laugh at people's jokes even if you don't understand them just just try your best and don't make this awkward. <laughs> but um, I'd say, like, in, an, in, a, in a full-time office environment, it's quite difficult for me. So recently we went back into the office for Refresh, which is um, which was a training event that we were running. And I was okay. in the office every day. Mm. And on one of the days in that week, there was particularly... Um, a large a large amount of people in the office than was normally and um, I think there was a moment and I don't know whether it happens to other people like this but it definitely this is the way I know that I'm suffering from sensory overload and yeah. there's like there's a thing in my brain when I say thing in my brain I mean like I start to get a headache and then it's almost like this headache is like if you've got your finger on a button and you're going to press it so like a lift button or a light switch or something and you're going to press it that headache is the start of sensory overload so it's like this is all my energy that I have for this environment the switch is flicked and my brain says no you can't be in this environment anymore and if you are if you do continue to be in this environment you're going to do one of two things you're going to shout at people or you're going to cry it's going to be one or the other so i have i've i've got a coping mechanism for this situation specifically and 
is to whack my... I've got some massive headphones. One of the things that I think autistic people should have in their in their toolkit, in their autism toolkit, I'm going to call it, uh, is a, a decent pair of big headphones, uh, proper noise cancelling, and invest in them. Don't get cheap ones because you will not be happy with them. Get, get some proper good ones. And I put them on and I'll go for a walk away from everybody. So it's just me, my headphones, and maybe some music. Um, I'll normally put music on to drown out outside sounds, so other people talking. Um, I, I hate the sound of public transport. I hate being on public transport, but I have to because I don't drive. So big headphones, music drowns out everything. <laughs> and just go for a long walk until the switch in my brain has like, until I've calmed down and then I can go back into that environment and hopefully navigate that a little bit better. But yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit of a tricky one. So working at home has definitely been a lot easier. Although I do have to tell myself, you know, you, you laugh at those jokes, even if you it don't. It makes a hundred percent sense. And I don't think it's weird at all because I do exactly the same. I think I was just saying it yesterday, actually, on a course I was delivering. I was saying to um, the lady I was training, um, I'm very confident in my role as a trainer. Literally every single course before the camera goes on, before I start speaking, in my head, I'm like, they're not going to listen. It's going to be terrible. They're not going to have the cameras on. I think of all the worst, worst case scenarios. Once the camera's on and I'm started, I'm good to go. I'm awesome. But I definitely have to gear yeah. up as well, so I totally relate to that. Yeah, it's it's almost like a mental process that my brain goes through. Like, what is this call going to be about? It's, um, you know, how long is this call going to be? Who is going to be on this call? Um, you know, my brain kind of goes through that multiple times before even like being ready to uh, actually like accept that join button and. Uh, because of that, uh, I've been I've been late to a few calls, but <laughs> but um, no one's ever marked me down for being uh, for for tardiness or anything no, like that. I th- so I think it's so like that's good. Part and parcel of working online, you just have to accept that sometimes other stuff happens, like with me today. But don't tell anybody. <laughs> but um, if we go back, Terry, so. I think with neurodiversity, it's um, a thing that doesn't seem like it is diagnosable until, you know, a child has started to really, you know, develop, you know, social skills or indeed face some challenges with social skills and situations. So can you tell us what you remember about your journey? Like, do you remember stuff about like primary school? How did all of this begin? I went through a little bit of a journey, to be honest. Um, I think my family knew that there wasn't something quite right uh, since I was in nursery, maybe maybe before that. But I didn't I didn't know any different or I didn't think I was different until I was probably a teenager. Um, I was told by my mum that I went to speech therapy when I was younger because there were words, um, particularly prepositions and location words like in or on or under that I didn't really understand. It took me a long time to grasp those. Um, And I can't really remember much of that. Um, But I also remember that despite the fact that I didn't understand 
that language, I was really, really good at reading and I was really, really good at spelling. I'm not sure whether these like raised red flags, but uh, apparently after a while, um, I um, I had raised some red flags uh, during nursery. I, I'm not 100% sure what those red flags were. I'd have to go and ask my mum. But apparently after a while I'd adjusted and then the nursery decided not to pursue, pursue any formal diagnostic process because they decided that um, I was normal now and okay. they called it a miracle. <laughs> right. So, yeah, there's a lot of information that I really want to unpick there. So when did you have your diagnosis? Um, I'd say in school, although I seemed like... I was well-adjusted on the surface. I had a really difficult time forming friendships. I don't know whether I'd go... uh, I think I would go so far as to say I was bullied, um, but I would also get into a lot of arguments with my friends and peers, and I'd always say or do things that I wouldn't mean to say or do. Like, I'd insult someone's appearance or I'd, I'd tell someone that someone was talking about them behind their back, which they most likely were, or I'd just generally be quite rude because I just didn't know how to... I didn't really know how to navigate friendships. I didn't really understand. So that would land me in hot water a lot to the point of where one point I actually had no friends at all and I really struggled with my mental health. I didn't understand why people didn't like me or why I had no friends or why I was such a bad child. I just didn't know what I was doing wrong. And... It was during this time that my mum took me to the doctors to have me assessed. She thought I was depressed. Um, I I think she knew more than that. But um, she went to the doctors and the doctor basically just said I was attention-seeking and referred me to, like, young people's counselling, which I didn't do. Um, But it was around that time that I overheard my mum talking to my nan about me maybe having um, ADHD I didn't hear her mention autism at this time, but I did hear her mention ADHD. And my nan actually worked as a teaching assistant at multiple schools with children who have special educational needs. And that was, I think, the first time that I thought, oh, maybe there is something wrong with me. And obviously I've been thinking, like, what is wrong with me for for a long time, um, like mental health wise, but I didn't. I didn't think that I was any different to anyone else. So at this point, I was like, wait, no, there, there is something about me that was that was that is different to other people. There is something I'm not understanding. But um, I let it slide until I was I was 17 and um, I'd, I'd got my first job and I was I was working on my first job. And I thought I was doing really well until my boss um, pulled me aside and actually asked me and said, is there anything wrong with you? Um, because apparently, uh, according to her, I wasn't grasping like the social cues of the workplace or, or the workplace culture, and I wasn't really understanding like spatial awareness or, or anything like that. And um, I remember my mum having a meeting with my boss at the time and said, you know, did you know that she was autistic? I was diagnosed, I was undiagnosed at this point. So bring that back and rewind. Um, what? So you're working, 
your parents come in to have a chat with your employer and they say, don't you know she's got autism? But at this point, you're not diagnosed. What is your thought process? What's your thought process then when you hear them say that? It, it, it's crazy, really, because, um, you know, a lot of people will tell me, like, oh, you don't look autistic or you don't seem autistic. Like, are you sure? Um, but, like, my whole life, people have been saying, you know, is there something wrong with you? So it's a, it's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Like, people that have known me and have been around me for a long time are like, oh, something's not quite right. But then people I just meet are saying, oh, I don't think so. No, I don't think that's the case. So I feel like sometimes it's a bit stressful because your brain goes into, like, self-doubt mode and then you're like, am I autistic? But then you remember, I've got this diagnosis, so I must be. <laughs> and it was it was kind of at that point where... I think I'd had a conversation with my mum and, and she sat me down and she said, actually, we've thought this, we've thought this for a long time. And I think at first I was absolutely fuming. I was so angry that they'd keep something like this from me. Um, so I went to a Senko at college and that Senko sat me down and said, like, why do you think you're autistic? What is there that you think like what autistic traits do you relate to and um I said oh these 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 and these um things like you know I I can't make eye contact I am terrible at in-person eye contact I can I can mask it a bit now but it makes me feel really really uncomfortable and I don't know when I'm just doing a bit too much so I can look quite creepy sometimes and things like knowing how to navigate, like, social situations, uh, knowing, like, I don't know, fashion trends, and, you know, it's just very obvious that I was I was different. Things like listening to the same music on repeat uh, all the time, just, like, loving music and loving new music, I would always go back and listen to the same songs on repeat for hours and hours and hours. And there were just a lot of behaviours that um, spoke out to the Senko who then wrote a letter to Autism West Midlands and he asked me, why do I need this diagnosis? And I just turned around to him and I said, and I, I, said I hate the feeling of thinking that there's something wrong with me and I want to know why I feel so different to everybody else. Like, I spent a lot of time well and truly believing that I am like an alien navigating this human world and that I really just don't understand human beings and how their brains work. And I still feel like that now. Like, I navigate the world and I'm like, I really don't get humans. Like, there's something not logical about the way a lot of humans go about their lives. Um... But yeah, that was really the the start of my diagnostic journey. And since then, um, I've obviously been diagnosed, I've taken numerous courses on autism, and I've also been diagnosed with dyspraxia as well. And um, I also feel like I've got traits of ADHD, all of which are massively overlooked in females. And that's just because we don't present in, we don't present autistic traits in the same way as males. And it's just not, it's not spoken about enough. It's a real shame because the reason why 
I got missed. And the reason why a lot of my friends or acquaintances will have got missed yeah. is because they were female. <laughs> but when you think of it now, so you're talking about getting the diagnosis, what did it do for you? Like, did it benefit you in any way? Was it a relief? Was it stressful? What did you, the person, feel like once you had a conversation? Well, it, it took a it it took a year, and I was nearly eighteen at the time, so it was quite horrible because there was like a ticking time. Um, because it was if you don't get this diagnosis um, now, there's a chance you might never receive it because there's no there's. There is diagnostic services for people over the age of 18, mm. but they are very expensive. It is very time, it's very, it's very kind of time consuming. And um, there's not really much you can get out of being diagnosed as an adult right. unless it's for your own personal sense of self. And yeah. um, one of the things that my the Senko, Dave, he said to me was, why do you want this? I said, I have known my whole life that I am weird or odd or I'm not like my other friends or I'm not like the other people in my class. I don't learn the same as other people in my class. I'm struggling and I, I, I need this help. I need to know why. So once you had confirmation, what happened next? So once the diagnosis came through, right, Terry, you know, you're on the spectrum. What happened next for you? So um, by that time, I was finishing college. Mm. I left the job. I left the job that I had, okay. which is probably good riddance, to be honest, because they were not very understanding yeah. and they weren't very understanding even after that meeting until the, until I left. Um, and I started living my life as an autistic person and it changed my life. Actually, it changed my outlook. Yeah. It changed the way I spoke to people, the way that I did things. Mm. It's, it's weird because I was going into life as an adult with no prior, no prior warning that I was going to be doing so as an autistic adult, right. sorry. And yeah. um, with no prep, I would then moved out of my mum's and in with my partner at the time. And I started living my life as an outwardly autistic person. And it, it absolutely changed everything. I, I wouldn't be the person I was today. I am today, even uh, without my diagnosis, like there, there's not a chance in hell. Absolutely. When you think about school, Terry, what are some things that could have been done to make the experience better for you? Um, so I obviously didn't have a lot of friends and that was kind of like my main, that was my main problem with school. I think, uh, constantly getting into to fights and arguments and it just not being a very happy place for me. Uh, I'd get angry quite mm. quickly as well. And, um, I mean, we could probably go on to talk about home because that's where I presented most of my most of my traits and probably why um, my autism got missed until so late was because at school I, I was kind of trying to stay out of the way as much as I could because the last thing I want is 
the teachers to hate me as well. Um, so, um, I think what you're talking about there is like, um, if I were to label it, the masking behaviors that can be used. So there's so much energy that's put into putting on this front at school to be, to try and be accepted by teachers, by peers. I didn't grow up as an autistic person. So uh, to me, all I've known is masking because, um, you know, I wasn't diagnosed at a young age. So all I've been trying to do my whole life is just try and seem seem normal to people. So um, I actually can't tell now what is my mask and, and what isn't. Uh, it's a very, it's a very fine line. And I know that Obviously, I experience sensory overload and I, I stim and I bite my nails and, and pull, like, uh, uh, bits of my, like, skin. So there's definitely things that I still do that um, are autistic traits and are autistic behaviours. But because I've spent so long trying to hide or or mask those things from uh, my peers, from my teachers, um, I suppose I haven't really, you know, I haven't really lived... Um, life as an autistic person so I feel like if school if schools were going to do anything like let let those kids fidget let them stim like if they want to be in a room that isn't a classroom let them be in a room that isn't a classroom supervise them do do all those things by, by all means but um I think I was in a mainstream school uh obviously there are um schools that are you know, that specialise in uh, people with extra educational needs. Um, but I think one thing that mainstream school needs to do is really just, uh, I hate to say it, but they need to get their act together in regards to SEND and in regards to people with learning difficulties because um, they're not doing an awful lot. And because of this, people are just, people will continue to be missed and they'll continue to mask um you know masking starts because you feel like you're different and I think schools should be letting everybody express their individuality instead of saying stop fidgeting like I'm not gonna I the amount of people that don't want to stop fidgeting you know or they feel uncomfortable in the situation and that's why they fidget or they stim because they're like having sensory overload like understand it recognize when it's happening and be patient and helpful instead of just calling people out for being different or telling them off I feel like there's a lot of that or autistic kids getting told off or expelled because there's no provision for them I think there's definitely a not a lot that needs to be done in uh uk schools um especially mainstream schools um to really kind of put that into practice oh god i'm fine i'm alive so when you look at what you've achieved how do you feel like when you compare it to where you were oh um because because whilst i was going through this stuff (laughs) as a teenager and me having a lack of a lack of sense of danger around the world mm. um, around, or of the world around me. Sorry. Um, I very much thought that at some point I was going to either end up dead or in jail. Uh, 
Um, and I'm, I don't want to speak for my family. They're very proud of me. They're very proud mm. of how far I've come. But at one point, they probably thought the same. Right. Um, so to be honest, I am happy to be here. Like that, that's not just, not just like here right now, but yeah. here alive. Yeah. Um, I'm very much like, I'm so proud of how far I've come. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to <clears throat> even remotely do any of this without some of the help and support that I've had of my friends. Yeah. And I hope my family don't mind me saying this, but I have, I've done it all on my own. Mm. I've not had any financial support or, yeah. or much physical support actually from my family, everything that I've navigated, yeah. I've navigated it myself. Um, and I've been through some really tough times. There's been some really, really hard times, yeah. but um, you know, it all makes me the person that I am. So like, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of how I've come and without the diagnosis is that I've had, cause I also have dyspraxia, mm. Um, which I had my diagnosis for in 2020, 2019, 2018, mm-hmm. sorry. I had my diagnosis when I was 22. Um, without those, I, I don't know where, I don't know. I, I don't, can't even ima- imagine what I'd be doing or where I would be. Yeah. Well, I know that I'll speak on behalf of the team when I say that we're delighted to have you as part of the squad. You know, I, you know, I hope you feel, you know, received for who you are because, and I think you contribute so much, which is amazing. It's great to be working with you. But um, I think Thank like, you. a re- oh, you're welcome. A really big question would be like, there are potentially parents or indeed, you know, teenagers who are experiencing some of the things that you're mentioning now. If you were going to speak directly to potentially those children, let's say, who are struggling with relationships, who do feel different, who are struggling with some of the social norms, what advice would you give them? Uh, don't, don't be afraid to kind of accept the fact that you're not normal because it's not a crime, first off. Uh, it's, it's definitely, and later on in life, it does, being, being the weird kid or being odd or having a certain like obsession with something or, um, you know, those differences make you who you are Mm. and um, you will be celebrated for those one day. My Mm -hmm. main autistic obsession and my my partner will reiterate this for me is music and music knowledge. I love every single aspect of music and I will go out of my way to make sure that I know every aspect of music. And because of that, because of that love for music, I have, you know, interviewed my favorite band ever i have gone on to enter shikari um i have you know been to so many concerts i can't even name them all i have presented on radio i have you know and all these experiences have led me to have the job that i have now so i think it's very, very important for teenagers to realise that actually your quirks are what make you unique and they are also what will make you stand out in the future. Um, and as for parents, I'd say don't be afraid of a diagnosis. Like if you feel like something is wrong, push for it because 
it does take a fight. Um, you will need to be strong, but there are things out there that can support you. Um, more young people have neurodiversity than you know. Most of them go undiagnosed. Um, so if you feel like there's a fight there and you want to go ahead and pursue that, um, do do so and know that there are there's support available to you because I I suck I I saw everything out myself and it would have been beneficial or nice to have my family on that journey with me. I think a lot of the time parents can focus on like where did I go wrong? How did I make this happen? And I think it's really, really important for parents to not put any blame on themselves. Like none of this is your fault. None of this is the child's fault. It's just the way people's brains work. Their brains work differently. As long as you give your child the love and patience your child deserves, then um, and tr- and treat them like a human being. Um, they will love you more more than you know. So don't. It it can be very easy. And I've spoken to lots of parents of autistic people, and uh, they can they find it's it's very easy to get all um, caught up on everything that goes on, and it's it's a fight. And and you can and you will be be stressed, especially if you're going through the NHS, but. Um, it's important to know that there are services out there for you. There are loads of support groups where you can talk to other autistic parents. And yeah, don't don't blame yourself because, um, yeah, it's not your fault. Cannot wrap up this episode any more perfect than that. Terry, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for speaking to me. I've got to edit an hour worth of <laughs> an hour worth of this audio now. So woo. <laughs> So that wraps up series two of Live from the Hive. Really so glad to have had Terry on today. I think it was a tremendously open and honest discussion that I imagine is going to help so many children and so many families out there. We're really looking forward to seeing you join us again for series three from Live from the Hive. Take care of yourselves and we look forward to seeing you then.